3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Through CR, would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the lands from which we broadcast. And 3CR pays respects to elders, past, present, and emerging of the Kulin Nation, and we recognise their unceded sovereignty. The Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is continuing its Stop Failing Our Kids campaign until this year's Victorian state election. We're asking people to sign an online petition and to send postcards to Premier Daniel Andrews, calling for his government to abandon plans to build a $288 million youth prison at Cherry Creek. We want that money directed to culturally appropriate programs to address the underpinning issues rather than incarcerating children. For more information and to sign the petition, visit Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Postcards are available at 3CR and locations listed at istramelbourne.com. Premier, it's time your government stopped failing the kids. It's Jim Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Good morning. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast on 855am. It is the 25th of October and currently 4 past 7. You're here in the studio with me, M, Katia and the beautiful Shahrazad. So happy to have you well, Why did you put the beautiful in there? Because I'm so happy that you're okay. here. I feel like you've been away quite a lot over the nah, past two I, months. So I it's have. It's really exciting to have you back. And it's, re- it's really good to be back. Um, and not intermittently. Except it will be intermittently because I'm only back for like the next two weeks and then I'm back overseas. So, But yes, I'm happy to be back we'll for the next We'll cherish it while it lasts. It's beautiful. Um, we've got a great show lined up for today. So we're having some interviews later on. We'll start off this morning with a few songs, but we have... Um, At 7.45, we're going to be chatting with Andre Dow, um, who's a writer and also a lawyer, but has been doing some really amazing work with Beyond the Wire. Um, we're specifically going to be talking about a show at the moment called How Are You Today, which is by the Manus Reporting Project Collective. Um, so that's six men who are held um, in detention on Manus Island who have been sending these recordings um, to three Melbourne-based yeah, writers, producers, um, and it's part of an exhibition at Ian Potter Gallery at the moment. So it'll be a really great conversation. And that's going to be followed by um, a chat with Dr Beth O'Connor, who's over in New Zealand at the moment. She's, with, she's a psychiatrist with Médecins Sans Frontières, or Doctors Without Borders, and she was working on Nauru for 11 months um, until uh, MSF was essentially told that they had to leave the island um, immediately as of two weeks ago. So we're going to be talking about what's been going on there, what MSF has been doing and what they're calling for. Great. Um, and then we're, we'll be speaking with Tamar Hopkins, who's a PhD candidate in UNSW Law, um, but she's working on uh, a project uh, looking at police accountability, and they've just released a survey called the Police Stop Survey, which is um, aimed um, at people who've been stopped by police, um, specifically around sort of racial profiling. But first we're going to start with a song. You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. 
Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. Okay, so we just listened to two tracks by Jamila Woods. The first one was called Very Black, and the last one we just listened to was called Black Girl Soldier. And now we're going to jump into some alt news. So in the last week, it's been all over the papers, but um, in the last week, uh, the Premier of New South Wales has announced new laws which will take effect and they'll affect um, partygoers at music festivals um, and around drug taking. So after, after DEFCON 1, which is a new, uh, new South Wales music festival, two people died uh, after overdosing and the government put together an expert panel um, this expert panel was all government-chosen members, um, including uh, police officers and the police commissioner. Uh, and what came out of that report was a recommendation to uh, create harsher sentencing around um, drugs at festivals. And this expert panel was uh, advised to not take into account pill testing. Uh, so. The Premier only a few days ago now announced that anybody found dealing at a festival can get up to 25 years in jail if a person that takes those drugs ends up dying. And so there's um, the laws, the sentencing sentencing will range between 10 to 25 years for anything from grievous bodily harm to manslaughter. Um, And there'll also be $500 on-the-spot fines for anybody that's found with drugs on them. The police commissioner came out from New South Wales and said that pill testing is a myth and it doesn't save lives. Yes. <laughs> Getting <Whoa>. shocked shock <laughs> looks here. Um, and, but Alex Wodak, who is from the president of the Australian Drug Law Reform Foundation, commented in a Garden, Guardian article, now we've had saturation policing at DEFCON 1 and still these tragic events are taking place. Sooner or later, a government in Australia is going to get compassionate and sensible. Until they do, the Premier and police are going to be hammered. So that's what's going on in New South Wales. Um, and this, these laws are just disgusting. Like, they put young people at risk. Um, and there's so much evidence um, from experts in the alcohol and drug field around um, safety and harm reduction, and especially pill testing as well as a harm reduction measure. And I think also, I mean, there's a lot of talk about these laws affecting young people in terms of, you know, people at festivals, they generally get drugs off their friends. Um, This idea of who the drug dealer is, um, is actually generally drugs are sold between friends. And so you might have a friend sell their friend drugs with no awareness that these drugs aren't um, essentially safe or have not been tested. Mm. I mean, I I should specify and, and say that it can never be 100% certain that any drug is safe. So it's not like Thursday breakfast is advocating for all drugs that are safe. But um, essentially that if we pill test, we reduce the risks mm. of those dr- drugs being unsafe. And so this puts at risk young people that are selling to their friends. Mm. Can, oh, I was going to say, could you just explain for us what pill testing is and why it's so important? Yeah, so pill testing is um, you can actually buy kits online so anyone can pill test you don't need to be an expert to do it they're kits that essentially you scrape off a little bit of the drug that you're intending to use and you put it in a um, a tube that has a chemical in it and the chemical will change colour depending on what is the content that's in either the pill or the powder that you may have bought Um, and depending on so you know some tests they will show purple colour so if it turns purple that means that there's kind of a higher 
um, purity level of the drug, the active drug in it. So for uh, people that may not know, in a pill there might be a mix of ecstasy and MDMA, which are the active ingredients that people are looking for. Um, and then those pills might be cut with other drugs. Um, and so what pill testing does is it tests for high quantities of harmful drugs. It can never test for all uh, harmful substances, so um, that's one of the limitations of pill testing, but essentially it really dramatically reduces the risk that when you take a pill, it might be um, cut with something that's quite dangerous. Mm. Um, and so, and pill testing has actually been, you know, taken place at festivals around the world, and a lot of people do their own pill testing at home and with their friends, and it drastically reduces the rates of overdose when you know what you're taking and how pure the substance is. So I would have thought, you know, um, Australia with its, um, how can you put it, uh, one, it's, it's quite, it seems like quite a, a backwards measure. Uh, it li- usually Australia likes to follow the example of Europe or something like that. Um, so I'm wondering what, why take such an authoritarian, conservative, yeah, yeah, but yeah. quite authoritarian, like, you know, like totally. more police and more, what is it? on-the-spot fines and people being jailed for up to 25 years. Um, and so creating this sort of bigger sense of fear around around drugs and around f- festivals and that sort of thing, and specifically targeting young people, as, as, you, as you just mentioned. I'm just wondering, you know, what, is this part of more authoritarian pushes around the country, which we're seeing? I remember a few years ago, um, in my early 20s, uh, there was talk around removing uh, police dogs at the start of at the front of festivals. I don't know what's happened with that. I don't know if that's they still have they're still there. Yeah, so New South Wales has the toughest yeah. measures. Right, mm. Victoria's a little bit more not as strict, I guess, <laughs> because people literally when they see those dogs, they freak out mm. and they swallow like five pills at a time or yeah. whatever, you know. So actually, I should say there are drug dogs at. Victorian festivals, so not all Victorian festivals, and New South Wales is policed much more heavily. But yes, there are um, drug dogs, particularly at some of the bigger festivals that happen in the city during summer. So they are patrolled with sniffer dogs. There's so many other ways that that you know we, we we could you know. So if we if we look at what's happening in the in the US with the legalization of of cannabis. Um, and what, what, uh, I think part of that was, oh, the government and corporations can make money out of this, so let's legalise it. <laughs> um, but we could we could take other avenues mm. to make drugs safer and to make festivals safer. Yeah, I've actually just had a text message from a, f- a friend that works in the alcohol and other drug um, uh, research in, um, area. So they've just sent through... Um, The home testing kits do not test for purity. They only test for the presence of drugs. This is part of their limitations. So you may have a dangerously strong pill, um, but all you've learnt is that it has MDMA in it, but not how much. Um, That is part of why the more complex pill testing being pushed for now Mm. is so much better. It shows the purity of the drug. So thank you, Adrian, for texting in. Um, It's lovely to have our listeners and also our friends text in and clarify things for us. Um, And we love that. So thank you, Adrian. (laughs) 
In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. 3CR's Radical Radio book is now on sale for just $30. You can get your copy of 3CR's book at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history on sale for just $30. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. Guatemala. I'm Black Betty, and you can join me for Black Noise Radio each Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. Join me each week as I serve you up a deadly fine offering of all things black as we explore Black Australia and everything fabulous it has on the offer. We'll check out and see what's making black news locally and from right around Australia. And we'll explore all things Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and the deadly solid culture and people with a look at community news, views, music, culture and the arts. Hope you can join me for Black Noise Radio featuring black news, views, current affairs, music, culture and the arts from an Aboriginal woman's perspective. That's me, Black Betty. I'll see you Thursdays at 2. Dinosaur Surprise Surprise. It's a show about kids stuff. What sort of kid stuff? All sorts of kid stuff. I'm Carl Panuzzo. And I'm Daniel Salvatore Christopher Larkins Panuzzo. And we are... Playing the platters that matter. Spinning the discs with a twist. Talking the jab that will keep you alive. To, to make, make sure, sure you really, really exist. Every Thursday. From 3.30 till 4. Right here on 3CR. 855 on your AM dial. We have giveaways and question time. We'll need you to SMS your favourite line. So tune in to find out what's going on in our world. I'm Dinah, surprise, surprise. surprise. You're on 3CR, 855 AM. It's just on 7.33 and we're going to update you with some news headlines. So in the Age this morning, there's an article called uh, Group Sued Over... Oh, sorry, Groups, is it? Global Group. Global Group Sued Over US Jail Debts Win State Deal. Uh, So the... Uh, so Correct Care, who is the current provider um, under Justice Health for... uh, the provision of health services in adult prisons has just won a $50 million deal to provide health care to uh, young people at Parkville and Malmesbury Youth Detention Centres. Um, this is worrying because... So Parkville and Malmesbury used to be under the jurisdiction of DHHS, um, and so now since, the move, since moving uh, those two detention centres over to... Um, the adult system under corrections, their health care will now be privatised. And this is a group that uh, has 
been liable for a number of negligent healthcare practices, both in the US and here in Australia. Um, and this is just really concerning and worrying because young people and all people should be on the Medicare universal health system. And when healthcare is privatised, we see gross um, negligent healthcare acts. Um, and one in the US under this group resulting in death of an inmate. Mm. And it's, yeah, it's a for-profit international as well. Yes, yes. So it's profiting off the imprisonment of people. And maybe another thing that would be good to share with listeners is that, um, again, just today in The Age, it's been revealed that um, there's been a new court hurdle put forward by Morrison um, and the Liberal government, the coalition government, um, to transfer ill refugee children to Australia. So um, it was in the Senate estimate questions this week, it was revealed that, you know, 11 more kids were transferred on Monday um, to Australia, which I think makes there's I think there's now 56 kids still held on Nauru um, but in an unprecedented move the Morrison government has questioned the federal court's authority to commence cases that allow sick kids to be brought to Australia for urgent um, emergency medical care so what this means if, if the government's argument is successful um, it means future cases may need to be filed in the high court first which could then make its own ruling or revert back to the lower court and Refugee advocates understandably fear that this could result in even more unwanted delays and, you know, bureaucratic hoops and red tape to go through um, when, you know, this is such an absolutely urgent situation, um, essentially, of the Australian government's making. Um, and this just puts more barriers in the way to actually um, providing these kids and all people who are detained on Nauru and Manus with the medical and all other forms of care that is so desperately needed. Mm. And we're going to be having a discussion later on that you'll be doing the interview for. Yeah, with Dr Beth O'Connor, who was um, a doctor on Nauru for 11 months. So we can definitely bring this up with her as well, which would be really great. Great. Oh, that, that was just uh, just in relation to um, uh, the sort of the youth prisons we were talking about before and um, with the stuff with Nauru. Um, there's a, there was a report. Uh, released yesterday um, and there's an article in The Guardian that talks about it uh, so Indigenous deaths in cu custody key recommendations still not fully implemented um, so it's a Deloitte review of deaths in cu custody that revealed that only two thirds of the of the Royal Commission's recommendations have been fully implemented um, and it goes into details about that and mm. that's on The Guardian. And also maybe though on that note you know when um uh, Minister Nigel Scullion, who's Minister of Indigenous Affairs, you know, came out and sort of mentioned this report yesterday. You know, it's been framed as being like, aren't we great? So many of them have been, um, have been taken up and implemented. And actually what's important to look at is how, yeah, how many of them haven't been mm. implemented and how this report, you know, which is now, it's, you know, over 10 years old, has been totally disregarded mm. by government after government mm. um, and actually not listened to. And there are so many recommendations in there that are still so urgently needed um, and so many solutions that have been known about for so long um, and yet actually they continue to be disregarded. So it's also important to look at how this report is getting like, picked up and framed by government to you know, mm. bolster their own position when actually you could also look at it being like, actually this proves that you haven't been doing anything. Mm. Two mm. sets. That's, that's a lot. Mm. Um, and... Um, also, in the, so the Guardian has uh, a collection of articles uh, and uh, um, investigations uh, called "Deaths Inside" um, that are specifically focusing on deaths in custody. 
And speaking of reports, I know there was one other report I think released maybe in the last few days, maybe yesterday, around um, sexual harassment and sexual assault at music at live gigs and music festivals. Um, I don't think we have the name of the report here, so we'll look it up while we do our next community service announcement. But I was listening to uh, 7.7.4 this morning and they were talking about this report and how there's very, very high rates of sexual assault at music festivals and, and live gigs as well. And unfortunately there was, I think, a sexual harassment case that arose out of the Listen Out uh, music festival that happened recently, which is a music festival about uh, women in the music industry. So that's quite shocking. And we'll get the name of the report in just a moment. Celebrate International Day of People with Disability at the Victorian Disability Sport and Recreation Festival. With over 30 exhibitors and three activity zones, come and try different inclusive sports, meet Paralympians and watch the AFL Wheelchair Challenge. This is a free, accessible, family-friendly event. Monday the 3rd of December from 10 till 3pm at Crown River Walk. For more information, visit dsr.org.au. A 3CR supporter. We'd never do that, Freddie. Cause I'm having a good time. We're planning such a good time with you, Freddie. Come to the screening of Bohemian Rhapsody on Thursday, November the 8th from 6.30pm at Palace Westgarth Cinemas and have a real good time with Freddie Mercury and Queen. Tickets are 25 full, $20 concession online at 3cr.org.au or from the station, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. You can also call 9419 8377 during business hours. All funds raised go to keeping 3CR on air. Genocide here is a lot more sneaky than it is in Rwanda or other places around the world. It's one thing whitefellas learnt in the last 200 years to be very sneaky about their genocide. You look at the 38 nations that were here before white settlement and then you count up the numbers that are still surviving, still out there doing their business on their country. Well, there's only 25 left, so what happened to the other 13? Let's talk about the Black GST. Genocide to be stopped, sovereignty acknowledged and treaties made. Tune in to Fire First every Wednesday from 11am till 12 midday on 3CR with Robbie Thorpe. The National Sustainable Living Festival is Australia's flagship sustainability event and applications are now open for the event in February 2019. To celebrate its 20 years, SLF is calling all changemakers, presenters, artists, performers and creatives to submit their applications for the biggest disruption yet. There's never been a more vital time to get involved in this important festival. Apply now. Go to slf.org.au. A 3CR supporter.
You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am. Um, right now we're going to jump into an interview with Andre Dow, who is a writer of fiction and non-fiction. He is the co-founder of Behind the Wire, an oral history project documenting people's experience of immigration detention, and the deputy editor of New Philosopher. He is also a qualified lawyer and has worked with asylum seekers and refugees in a legal capacity. This morning we're going to be chatting about the Manus Recording Project Collective and their work How Are You Today, which is part of an exhibition at the Ian Potter Gallery, which runs until this Sunday, 28th of October. Good morning, Andre. Hi, Em. How are you? I'm well. I was wondering to start with, would you be able to give us a bit of an introduction to this really amazing um, collective and their work and your involvement in it? How are you today? Sure. So the collective comprises six men, um, five of whom are currently... um, detained on Manus Island, um, and another man who's recently um, moved from Manus to Port Moresby, um, but he's still in the same sort of um, perilous situation as the other um, five men. So the six men are Samad, Shamindan, Kazem, Fahad, Aziz and Baruz. Um, and the Manus Recording Project Collective, um, essentially the idea is that each of these men make a recording each day that's 10 minutes long. Um, and they send that to uh, three of us here in, in Melbourne, so Michael Green, John Chia and myself. Um, and the 10-minute recordings um, can be of anything that the men choose, so uh, the idea is that it's just um, a 10-minute recording that in some way captures um, some aspect of their of their life in detention um, or their life in limbo on Manor. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's been running since July and um, there's a, re- a new recording every day so that um, by the end of the um, the exhibition there'll be 14 hours of these recordings. Yeah, and how did this come about? Uh, so it started off actually um, with a podcast called The Messenger that um, Michael, John and, um, and I worked on with the Wheeler Centre um, and that was with um, Abdulaziz Mohammed, uh, one of the men on Manus, um, and... Coming out of that, um, James Parker and Joel Stern, who curated the exhibition at the Ian Potter Museum, um, approached us to use some of the uh, archive material from that um, podcast. So we actually thought that we wanted to work with something a bit different um, and and make something a bit more contemporaneous. So um, in The Messenger, the recordings that that you hear in the podcast were often made um, quite a while before they aired, and we wanted to do something that... Um, where the delay was much shorter, maybe one or two days. Sometimes the recordings are made on the same day that they get played in the gallery. Mm. Yeah, which is something that's so... It, it, it's really incredible as a listener, the way that you you know, you know hear these voices and, and the way that time is working there. Like It's so recent. It really does something to, I don't know, conventional ideas around like proximity and distance and the way that, you know, these men and all people who are detained on Manus and Nauru get represented in the Australian media and that, you know, the, the need um, to maintain that distance in order to maintain, you know, whether it's apathy or disengagement. There's something about the proximity of listening to someone's voice only yesterday or even a few hours ago that is incredibly powerful. Yeah, and I think there's something in particular about the audio form and, and we chose 10 minutes um, as, well because it stands out 10 minutes is quite a long time to mm. sit um, or stand in a gallery and, and listen um, especially when as with most of the recordings there is not necessarily a lot of narrative to, to hook into um, I mean sometimes the men do speak directly 
directly to the audience, but often they'll also just be recording um, perhaps themselves making coffee or cleaning the oven or um, listening to music or, um, you know, trying to get to sleep. And I think that sort of duration, the 10 minutes, requires the audience to listen in a way that maybe um, they're not used to listening to. So they might be more used to listening to a political message a really direct political message. Um, and I think that this kind of listening, um, this work perhaps requires something different of the audience. And, yeah, and I think it does be something different to that feeling of distance and proximity because, um, as Samad um, said to me just the other day in a message, um, he felt one of the things that he really liked about being a part of this project was the, the feeling that people were spending 10 minutes of their day with him. Mm. So, and often his recordings are, you know, him listening to the music in his room. Mm. I think that kind of gets to the heart of the work, this idea of spending a bit of time with um, Edna. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and because, that, you know, on the... Um, the eavesdropping liquid architecture website there's you know there's an sort of a, an archive or a list of or a brief description of all the recordings and as I was reading through them you know some of them are so incredibly um, for one word a word you know banal or everyday you know for example there's like Hazem like on Monday making a capsicum mushroom and chicken pizza or um, Samad yesterday trying to study while recovering from a cold you know they're just like very everyday um experiences that you know a lot of listeners would be able to identify with and I feel like that that familiarity um and that everydayness seems to be really important and so different to so many of the media representations that get so much airtime um in mainstream Australian media of um you know the immigration prisons you know images or sounds of horror of suffering or you know at the moment you know we're talking very necessarily about the critically ill kids but there, there's so much um, power in, yeah, spending 10 minutes with someone's every day. Could you speak to that a bit or that, that choice, again, yeah, to really focus on um, these everyday experiences and what the aim, of, I guess, yeah, of the project is in that regard? Yeah, and I guess, um, look, the, we would never want to minimise the horrors of, of what these men have gone through and what the other people have been detained in the offshore detention centres have gone through. Um, but, you know, I guess that that those horrors are available for people to read and listen and, and, and watch, um, and they have been for some time now um, through, you know, the really tireless work of both the people who are detained and, and the people advocating for them. Um, and I guess what we're trying to do with this work is something a little bit different. Um, and it was interesting that um, both Aziz and Barus have said about participating that um, they felt like art was a language that was available to them um, that allowed them to express something different about their situation. Um, and, that, and I guess they were comparing that to say the media and political work that they've been doing. Mm. I thought that was really interesting um, trying to work out what it is about presenting this, these recordings as art um, that perhaps maybe people are, you know, approach a gallery with a different mindset and maybe they're open to more ambiguity um, and more nuance. And I think if you approach the work that way, you actually get a better understanding of what most of their days mm. are like because they're not 
I think they're punctuated by the horrors and, and some of the recordings do touch on um, the self-harm and the mental health issues um, amongst the men. But generally, from you know day-to-day and minute-to-minute, it's um, simply trying to fill in time as they wait. And I think that's really gets to the heart of what they've been going through for the last five years is this kind of interminable waiting. Yeah. And, yeah, I think that that's... But yeah, that was a point that I was thinking of asking you about around, yeah, this shift from that we're perhaps used to seeing these these messages within a um, political or or media context, and then shifting into the space of art, um, does something really different and really important. Um, but on that note, I wanted to also sort of ask more broadly because I know that you yourself. Um, you know, are qualified as a lawyer, and but now also work in these these other spaces of, um, I guess you know more either yeah, creative or with words and with writing. Um, would you be able to talk more about I guess yeah your your own involvement in the project and also what you see about um, the the yeah I guess why why we might want to sort of move beyond. Um, merely like legal or political way of approaching these things? Sure. Um, so another um, long-running project that I've been involved in is called Behind the Wire. So How Are You Today and Behind the Wire are kind of re- related but um, slightly separate things. And um, with Behind the Wire, which is an oral history organisation that tries to document the experiences, the lived experiences of people who have um, been through human rights um, abuses, uh, that started out um, essentially because um, myself and uh, our friend Sienna Moreau um, both lawyers and um, I guess found that we, in, in working with people in that legal context, um, came across people with much more to say than what was sort of usable in, a, in, in the legal setting and um, I guess it was born out of a bit of a frustration at having to cut people's stories down and, and reduce them to um, you know, what, what a court or what a tribunal um, thinks is important and not very often that's not what people think is important about their own story. And then, so that was, I think, working outside of law, um, working creatively is partly about um, acknowledging people's agency to, to tell their stories. Um, in a way that the legal setting isn't really geared to do. Um, so that, for me, that was the importance personally of of, of doing this work with um, to recognise people's ability to, to tell their own story. Yeah, absolutely, and also, and also maybe to create an archive of those stories as well, um, because you know both the recordings change every day. And you know, listeners can experience them when they go into the gallery. But am I right that is there also going to be an archive created of all these recordings? Yes, definitely. So, yeah, as I said at the beginning, it's going to be 14 hours of recordings by the end of the project. Um, yeah, 84 separate recordings. Um, and we'll definitely they'll definitely exist in an archive in some form. And I mean, that's something we're actually thinking about at the moment is exactly how to present the archive um, and potentially where it 
it, it may be um, exhibited again, um, perhaps as a full archive, um, mm. and what kind of spaces, you know, that's a question that we've been asking is what sort of spaces should it be in, um, you know, museums and galleries again, or um, it, at the moment, actually, the, the current iteration of the work is also being staged in the foyer of the Melbourne Law School, mm-hmm. which has been an interesting um, experience to to see in a very different space from the gallery because that's a space where people are just moving through to get to their classes, to get to work. Um, and that's, So in that context, the work is a real interruption of people's days, which um, has been um, very interesting but very different to, um, I guess, the, the more sacred space, if you like, of, mm. of the gallery. So, yeah, the archive, I think, is something that we'll continue to work on and think about how to put the best preserves it, but um, we do think that historically is, I think, yeah, of real importance because there's not anything else that has recorded life on Manus in quite the same way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, there seems to be something so important about, you know, an, an archive, which in a sense is creating um, permanence, like looking towards the future, given, you know, yeah, given that so many people, you know, on Manus are trapped in this state of, of limbo or of waiting or of you know transience or of, yeah, that it, it seems like an incredibly important and powerful project for so many reasons. And unfortunately, we are going to have to wrap up. But um, would you be able to tell us how can listeners find out more? Sure. So um, people can um, still head to the Ian Potter Museum of Art, which is at the University of Melbourne, or else they can go to um, the Melbourne Law School um, up until Sunday. Mm -hmm. Um, And then after that, um, if people search the Liquid Architecture site for the Manus Recording Project Collective, they can find that archive that uh, we've been talking about. And um, I think over the next few weeks, um, if people are looking there, they'll also be able to start to hear some of the recordings that we might be putting online and also finding out what we'll be doing um, with the archive in the long term. Amazing. Thanks so much, Andre, for talking with us today. And we'd love to have you back on sometime to talk about the work of Behind the Wire more broadly. Thanks thanks so much for having me on. Have a great day. Thanks. Bye. Accent women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a a completely violent um, cultural milieu that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accent women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the How the can country. people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are two where there are armies there and terrorists there and such conflict every single day of their lives? Accent women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. Every Monday from eleven AM on Community Radio three CR. Great Voices number 17 is the latest two-CD set from Great Voices on 3CR. It's a unique collection of rare opera and song featuring current singers like Kaufman and Kalea and the best singers of the 20th century. Colour, Sullivan, Olivero, Schwarzkopf, Guetta, Corelli, Pavarotti, Carreras and dozens more. Some less famous and some unknown. At $35 posted, $30 at 3CR, this two-CD set number 17 will delight you with two and a half hours of glorious pleasure.
previous issues are now only $10 each. Proceeds to 3CR. Ring now on 94198377 or go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. special day for us brothers as a reminder who we are every year for NAIDOC week 3CR Community Radio gives voice to our indigenous brothers and sisters through Beyond the Bars Australia's only live prison broadcast I am a black black man NAIDOC means a lot to me it's about identity and also about past and present NAIDOC means a lot to me for my family and my people. And the people forgetting about our rights. You can access audio from current and past Beyond the Bars broadcasts via the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars and either listen to or download audio from Australia's only live prison broadcasts. Happy Nadoff! You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am. So just before we were chatting with Andre Dow about the Manus um, Recording Project Collective, which is on Ian Potter until um, this Sunday. And now we're going to be talking with Dr Beth O'Connor, who is a psychiatrist um, who was working on Nauru for 11 months with Médecins Sans Frontières, or Doctors Without Borders, who's going to talk to us this morning um, about what's been going on in the two weeks since um, MSF had their press conference on 11th of October. Good morning, Beth. Good morning. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Um, I was wondering to begin, would you be able to give us a bit of backdrop about um, what Médecins Sans Frontières was doing um, on, yeah, on the island and how long that was doing it, how long you were there for? Uh, so I was on the island for 11 months and uh, we were working uh, providing a mental health treatment uh, to those with moderate to severe mental illness. So that included both the Nauruan population and the refugees and asylum seekers. Um, amongst the Nauruan population, we're mainly treating people with chronic psychotic disorders. And amongst the refugee and asylum seeker population, uh, we were treating people with depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder. And a result of these disorders, uh, they were... Uh, um, self-harming and having suicidal thoughts and having suicide attempts. Mm. We were seeing those uh, conditions in children as well, and we saw children as young as nine years old who had suicidal thoughts or or were making suicide attempts. Amongst the children, we were also seeing a condition called traumatic withdrawal syndrome or resignation syndrome. And these children uh, were children that became depressed and socially withdrawn um, and took to their bed. And when we tried to visit these children in their homes, uh, they weren't eating or drinking sufficient amounts 
keep themselves alive. Uh, many were unable to toilet, toilet themselves, and they weren't able uh, to communicate with us anymore. Uh, they just looked right through us when we tried to talk to them. And these were children, uh, many of them that I knew uh, from being on the island, children that previously had talked to us in settlements or in the shops, and then uh, they just became so withdrawn that they didn't communicate to us anymore, and they weren't even speaking to their families. And could you explain for us why MSF was requested to leave the island immediately, just over two weeks ago now? Uh, the Nauruan authorities uh, said that our uh, activities were no longer required, and they didn't give us a, a more reason than that. Um, and, and we believe that our, our work there was still required, uh, there were significant gaps um, with the mental health care uh, for the Nauruan population. Uh, and also uh, we had a long waiting list in our clinic uh, of over, um, oh, I think, nearly 100 people. Uh, so, yes, there was plenty of work still to be done there. Mm. And what motivated um, MSF's decision to... Um, come out publicly and you know have a press conference on the 11th of October and call for the uh, you know the immediate end of or the, the immediate evacuation of all um, children from Nauru but also the end for offshore detention centres. Over the time that we were there, we saw significant worsening of the mental health of the refugees and asylum seekers and overwhelming levels of hopelessness and despair. And uh, the indefinite offshore detention uh, policy uh, seemed to be the cause of this hopelessness and despair. These people uh, weren't able to recover from their mental illness and their past trauma because they still didn't know what their future will hold. Uh, and we saw at certain points in the time that we were there, we saw deterioration. For example, when a large number of uh, negative responses to the US resettlement process was given, we saw our, all of our patients uh, who were refugees and asylum seekers, we saw their mental health decline. Uh, so we saw this correlation between uh, what was happening with the policy and, uh, and their mental health. And we had uh, grave concerns having left the island, uh, that their mental health would continue to deteriorate. So that's why we held the press conference uh, to call an end to this policy of indefinite offshore detention uh, because from our observations of being on the island uh, for nearly a year is that this policy is causing harm to people's mental health. Yeah, and... You know, and there's been calls from other, um, I mean, many, many other doctors and also many other medical associations such as the AMA as well um, who have been speaking out very publicly um, against offshore detention, which I think, yeah, seems to me to be so important because, you know, both because of your frontline experience working um, with people who are so impacted um, on Nauru but also because of, you know, the, the trust, I guess, that, that the public has for, for doctors. Um, it, it, that seemed to be like a real turning point for me, I guess, in, in the debate around um, the 
absolute injustices that are happen- that are being perpetrated on Nauru that when the medical community um, come has started speaking out against them, that seems to be um, really important. But I wanted to ask, do you, act- do you feel like there's been much traction or do you feel like much has changed in those two weeks since the press conference? Um, it's hard to comment because not being on the island anymore, uh, it, it, it's hard to know exactly what's happening there uh, but I think um, in Australia it seems that there is more people talking about the issues uh, and uh, the government um, and the opposition parties are all discussing it more um, there's yet to be any um, decisions made uh, so uh, we are still um, talking about it to people because we still believe that the uh, indefinite offshore detention is causing harm to people's mental health in Nauru. Um, and so the sooner that those changes can be made, the better um, action, uh, the better. Yeah. And, you know, this week, um, on, on Monday, another 11 children were flown to Australia, but that still leaves um, over 50 kids still on Nauru. Um, and there have been conversations um, between, you know, the government and the opposition about a potential deal with New Zealand um, to for resettlement there with the provision, you know, Morrison has been saying with this provision that there'd be a lifetime ban on any refugees um, settling in Australia after that. Would you feel comfortable sharing your views um, on that? Well, as a, uh, as a doctor, uh, all I can really comment on is what would be the uh, most beneficial for people's uh, mental health. And uh, we believe that that would be uh, for all of the asylum seekers and the refugees, both the children and the adults, to be uh, moved to a place of safety with dignified conditions so that they can complete their resettlement process. So when people have experienced a lot of trauma, they need to be in a secure environment uh, to be able to work with them to recover from that. So that's what we are asking for. Um, where exactly uh, it's decided that they're moved there, uh, that's up to the Australian government to decide, uh, but we are recommending it's a place to stay through with inside conditions uh, and that that needs to happen as soon as possible. Of course. And, you know, as you say, there might be more people talking out um, now about what's going on, but yet you know there are still so many children and adults trapped on Nauru, and in this sort of you know indefinite waiting. And you in 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 some of your media engagement, you've said um, that pe- many people that you worked with on Nauru have told you that it would be better to be a criminal than a refugee on Nauru. I was wondering, could you explain that a bit more for us? So uh, what? refugees and asylum seekers told us was that if you're a criminal uh, you get charged with an offence and you get a fixed sentence and you know when your sentence will be over and that you can continue living your life but in Nauru those refugees and asylum seekers uh, there's no end to their sentence at the moment they can't plan for the future Uh, they're just waiting every day Uh, so that's why they say it would be better to be a criminal than to be a refugee on Nauru yeah. Um, and actually, uh, yeah, I guess we're about to wrap up the interview, but I was just wondering, 
for you personally, um, what, I guess, yeah, where to from here or both what, maybe what um, motivated you to work on Nauru and also what are you, yeah, what, what are you, um, where are you thinking of moving to from here with your work? Um, I haven't started yet. Uh, there's still um, some work uh, we would like to do uh, uh, to assist uh, with Nauru at the moment. Um, and at the moment, it's speaking to people and letting people know what's happening because things still haven't changed since we left. Uh, but I'm not sure what will come after that. I'll have to wait and see. I might have a wee bit, bit of a break after that. I really hope so. <laughs> um, can I ask, how can people find out more and um, yeah, get involved? Uh, MSF have an online petition uh, that people can uh, look up. and uh, If they uh, agree with it, they can sign our petition uh, and that's calling for the end of... Uh, indefinite offshore detention and even uh, all the children and adults uh, move uh, to a place of safety from Nauru. Um, and uh, there's also lots of advocacy groups uh, that they can they can join locally. I think in Australia now there are, there's lots of regional activities as well. Um, so probably if they Google it, uh, they'll find there's a lot that they can do to help. Wonderful. Thank you so much for speaking with us this morning, Beth, and I really hope you do have um, a break on, on in the near future. Thank you very much. This year's TILDA, Melbourne Trans and Gender Diverse Film Festival, is packed with stories that represent the rich tapestry of trans and gender diverse people's lives. The program runs from Thursday the 8th to Sunday the 11th of November at Footscray Community Arts Centre and celebrates the best trans and gender diverse cinema on offer, along with Q&A sessions with festival guests and opening and closing night events. Program details and tickets are available at tildamelbourne.com, a 3CR supporter. Fight for your mic. Want to support 3CR's diverse and independent voices? Well, it's not too late, and we still need your support. Donate now by calling 9419 8377 or donate online at www.3cr.org.au or post us a cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277, Collingwood 3066. Fight for your mic. You're listening to 3CR Radio. Okay, so next up we have uh, Tamar Hopkins, who's a PhD candidate at the law school at UNSW. Um, and she's recently introduced a survey as part of her PhD research um, called the Police Stop Survey to explore the circumstances and experiences of people being stopped by police in Victoria. Good morning, Tamar. Good morning. Uh, so firstly, could you tell us a bit more about the, the work you're doing? Yeah. <clears throat> so this PhD work um, comes out of uh, a, a long decade, more than decade-long campaign um, that I've been working in and around and supporting um, people 
around looking at the issue of racial profiling and how do we stop it um, occurring in Victoria. Um, and one of the really clear thing that becomes quite obvious is the lack of data on racial profiling that exists across Australia um, and that we're in fact 25 years behind the rest of the world in terms of um, understanding the depths of this problem. So wherever else in the world this has been studied, um, clear patterns of disproportionality in policing um, has, has been shown. <clears throat> but in Australia, <clears throat> where police uh, don't even collect this data regularly and where they do, they don't make it public. Um, and so we can't um, speak about it with the authority that many places around the world can. So what, what this survey aims to do is to fill a gap, um, a data gap that exists in Victoria about um, what goes on when police stop individuals. And the survey is open to everyone who's over 18 who's been stopped by police in the last 10 years or a um, protective service officer. So that includes all of your listeners who are over 18, I'm sure. It's, being stopped by police is a very common um, common event. And um, I'm after stories that are um, positive, neutral, negative. Any, any experience is very useful for this survey. So really encourage listeners to, to get on board and um, go and check it out. Um, yeah, so you also worked on a report recommending um, that Victoria Police introduce a racial profiling and monitoring uh, system or scheme. Um, could you tell us a bit more about that report and its findings? Yeah, sure. So <clears throat> just to give, I'm, I'm not sure, I'm sure many of your listeners will be aware that in um, 2013, Victoria Police settled a major racial profiling claim by a group of, of young Africans and one of one of the claimants was part Indigenous. Um, and that settlement led to a, <clears throat> a big public inquiry by um, Victoria Police um, into its stop uh, field contact practices and um, its training um, practices. <clears throat> and um, that culminated in a report called the Equality is Not the Same Report. It also, which um, started a three-year program that is in fact continuing now, um, it led to the creation of a whole new division within Victoria Police called the Priorities Communities Division and to Australia's first racial profiling ban. So some really great work at, at kind of a policy level from Victoria Police came out of that report. However, subsequent studies have um, revealed that actually the experience on the ground hasn't changed at all. So um, a report by two of the applicants, uh, Daniel Hale-Michael and Maki Iza, um, in 2015 uh, showed that this um, people were experiencing stops, um, unnecessary harassment and stops uh, continuing. So th things hadn't changed. And um, so from that... The Flemington and Kensington Community Legal Centre um, auspiced a group of academics to come and um, have a look at what might be needed in Victoria to start monitoring the um, presence of racial profiling. And a group of academics, um, including Professor Janet Chan, um, Dr Vicky Sentas, um, Professor Chris Cunning, um, Leanne Weber... Um, uh, 
Claire Land um, and a number of others uh, put together a report setting out a set of recommendations of how Victoria Police could go about um, filling this data gap and exploring and, and finding out whether its policy ban on racial profiling was actually effective. So <clears throat> that report was released last year um, and we're still waiting, I guess, for a formal response from Victoria Police to that report and its recommendations. Um, so we're, the space, I mean, we, we understand they're, they're considering it, but we haven't kind of heard formally about the response. So, yeah, there's a lot of work being done um, to try and get some hard data on this. Um, and in the absence of official data from the police, this survey is, is about filling filling that gap. And the, the survey has... Um, there's a lot of potential things that can come out of it. Um, firstly, it, what it does is explore whether there are any differences that people have when they are stopped by police dependent on their racial appearance. So, um, and studies done internationally have shown that um, white people experience very different stops to people of colour. And so I'm really curious to see whether this difference can be seen in Victoria um, and that that would be you know incredibly useful for people who are considering who've experienced racial profiling and wish to do something about it in terms of advocacy or litigation strategies so so it you know has has some real benefits so um, so it it really requires as many Victorians to get behind it as possible and to go to that website and record um, their most recent stop experience with the police. Um, just If we can just uh, talk a bit more about the key recommendations. Um, <clears throat> yeah, from, from the... Re- from the most, report. Yeah, from the most recent yeah. uh, report that the Victoria yep. Police still hasn't responded to. Um, yep. What were some of those uh, key recommendations to sort of... Um, yeah. Yeah. Address these okay. issues of racial profiling. Okay. Well, first of all, um, we what we're calling on is for the police to start recording um, the the um, racial appearance of people who they stop. So they don't quest. They don't ask people what what race they are or what ethnic background they are. That would just that would be really intrusive and an invasion of privacy to to do that when they're stopping people. But just record, as they currently do for field contacts, what they think is the person's racial appearance, as well as some other data about what was the reason they engaged in the stop, what was the outcome of the stop, um, so and, and the, the location and, and those, those kinds of details. Now, that data is currently being recorded when police do a field contact. Um, it's, it's not mandatory that police record the ethnic appearance or racial appearance of the person they stop. Um, so it's discretionary for the police to do that, um, but we're calling on it to be mandatory. But the problem is, is that field contacts are only a very small number of the types of stops that police do of the public. So Victoria Police's latest policy is that a field contact report is to be submitted where police reasonably believe that a person has committed a criminal offence. Now, that is the same standard 
that um, would allow a police officer to arrest a person. So police can arrest a person where they reasonably believe they've committed a criminal offence. And so really, these field contacts are a very tiny proportion of all the kinds of stops that Victoria Police actually do with members of the public. There'll be many, many other stops where they just um, approach a person and ask what they're doing, where they don't actually have a belief that they've committed, a, a reasonable belief that they've committed an offence. And it's all of the stops that we're wanting Victoria Police to start collecting because it's that sort of the experience of being constantly stopped and questioned that, um, you know, that is so concerning for targeted communities. And the, tar the communities that are particularly talking about being targeted are the Pacifica communities, the African communities, Indigenous peoples um, and people of Middle Eastern background or Muslim young people particularly. So it's, it's um, the, the sort of frequent overstopping um, is, is where we really want the details to be recorded by Victoria Police, not the ones where they had the power to arrest. So, so the report um, recommends that the police start collecting that data in relation to all stops that they engage with in the, with the police. But the other important thing that the report um, uh, recommends is that they, a threshold be applied on when they actually stop anyone so that they, can't, they shouldn't just be stopping people on fishing expeditions, but there needs to be some kind of reasonable um, standard before they actually make any contact with individuals. Um, and so, so that's a really important change. Um, and so hopefully if the police implemented these, these changes, we would not only have um, data on the prevalence of racial profiling, but hopefully a real reduction in, in stops. And um, where these threshold changes have been introduced internationally, like in, in Chicago uh, a number of years ago, um, there was a threshold applied to police stops, which um, cut the police stops being experienced by... Um, it went from 400,000 stops to 100,000 stops. So, you know, a, a quite a dramatic reduction in stops over a, a specific period of time. So that's the kind of thing that we'd be, we'd be after. Mm. Um, I, just, I, I can't help but think, so this is more of a, a broader sort of structural um, thing that I'm thinking about when we're talking about policing yeah. and that sort of stuff. Um, yeah. And sort of the very way policing is done, you know, which is you know, done to sort of enforce the nation state you know, relies yeah. on ideas of, of white supremacy um, for its for its legitimisation. Um, mm. So, you know, and, and that's a evident, you know, throughout all institutions uh, within mm. the sort of way that the state is constructed. Um, so how can it change if it's like sort of like embedded in a in a system that relies on, on white supremacy? I don't mm. know if that's a, that's a very broad question. Yeah, no, what are your no, thoughts absolutely. on that maybe? Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, you can see, you can see that, you know, the way, you know, the way society is constructed leads to all of these systemic, um, uh, institutionally racist outcomes in, in so many ways across all institutions, the health institution, education, the criminal justice system, all of these ways. Um, and, and you're right that 
to, to really remedy the problem of um, institutional racism is is a whole of society um, transformation that is is really required. Um, so what what these strategies are about is starting to collect data on institutional racism. So we we don't even we're not even at the starting point, which allows institutions to deny or deny the reality that is experienced by people, the everyday reality of, of this kind of racism. So this is this is not a this is not going to um, challenge the deep um, deep status of racism in the country, but it starts to provide an evidentiary basis for that for the existence of that racism. And you know Australia is such it's in denial about this about this problem and one of the reasons it can stay in denial is that we are we do not collect any data on on this and so um so so that and the absence of data means that it's we can't uh, there's no political will around doing anything about it um it kind of it allows us to to kind of um live in the, you know in this denial so really really what this is about is providing some the beginning stages of real hard data and research into into the problem that exists um, to prevent some of that denial. But really good question you ask about what is what is this really going to do to change things? And obviously, it's only a tiny part of the entire strategy that's required. Um, and how? And just before we wrap up, um, can you quickly tell us um, how can people participate in the Police Stop Survey? Yeah, sure. So if you go to www.policestopsurvey, that's all one word, policestopsurvey.online, you'll get to um, a website that gives you some information about the survey and leads you to a link where you can take the survey. So that website is www.policestopsurvey, or one word, dot online. Great. Thank you so much, Tamara, for coming, on, no, for coming this morning. No problem. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks. And that was Tamara Hopkins, uh, who is a PhD candidate at the law school at UNSW, um, and she's introduced a survey called the Police Stop Survey to explore the circumstances and experiences of people being stopped by police in Victoria. And we're almost out of time. Before we go, though, we did need to do two follow-ups from today's show. So a caller uh, called in and said thank you for covering the topic of corporatisation of healthcare in um, jails generally, but in young people's jails, and mentioned a book by Chris Hedge, author of America, The Farewell Tour, and that uh, Chris Hedge will also be featuring on Friday morning on 3CR on Alternative News which is a snapshot of Australia's path towards corporatisation regarding prisons. And also um, we mentioned a report about sexual violence uh, at music festivals and that um, research is being done by Bianca Fileborn and Philip Wads at the University of New South Wales and Stephen Thompson at Western Sydney University. And we're almost out of time. So... Thanks so much for listening today. Um, I think, yeah, next up we've got Lost in Science and then tomorrow morning tune back in for Friday, Thursday breakfast. But otherwise, hope everyone has a really excellent day and we'll be back next week.
Thank you. Thank you. 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall, and eco-friendly paper and printing outfit, Earth Greetings. You can check them out at nibs.org.au and earthgreetings.com.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 8377.